O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord, or declare all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Those are the first five verses of Psalm 106, the first 18 verses of which are the psalm appointed for today, Monday, November the 22nd, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We are at the week before uh, Advent. It seems impossible to believe that, but we are. And so <clears throat> we'll begin this week. We're going to be looking at prophecy, sort of a, a, a random selection at some levels of prophecy about the coming of the Lord. And so that those will be our Old Testament lessons day by day. And then we're in um, Peter, in First Peter chapter 1, 1 to 12 today. And then in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, the first 12 verses there. So, in the uh, Joel passage, it's Joel today, 3, 1 to 2, and then skipping forward to verses 9 to 17. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. And so it's a similar <coughs> kind of a word to, excuse me, to um, the passage in Revelation that speaks about the, uh, the battle at Armageddon, um, which, which doesn't actually happen, remember, with the, the armies gather and then fire falls from heaven and, and destroys the opposing army. And so in, in this one, the Lord's saying, yep, these have treated my people wrongly. And because they have treated them wrongly, I'm going to bring them to this place, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, and I'll deal with them there in that place. So now they're told, uh, Joel is told, proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears, let the weak say, I'm a warrior. In other words, let's buckle up and get ready to go. Let's let's take all the let's turn everything, including the pruning hooks and plowshares, the thing, the implements that would provide for us. Let's take them and go to the battle. It's time to get this done once and for all. So we're going to even take the implements of production and turn them into weapons and gather. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread the wine press, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. All this is imagery that's also used in Revelation, where he treads the wine vats. He treads through the wine presses. Uh, and the vats overflow with blood because of the evil in the earth. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. Again, all this stuff, these are all uh, images also from Revelation. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold 
to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. Again, all these are the same images that John sees in Revelation. And so it's in um, fulfillment of uh, Joel's prophecy that John sees what he sees as the final days, where the, the nations, all the armies of the nations will come, and they'll come to this one place and gather there against God's people. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. And we live in a time when we need to know that. We need to know it with all our heart. We need to believe that. We need to be able to stand firm and stand strong in the day in which we live. It calls for courage from Christians. It calls for those who are weak to say, I'm a warrior. Because we're all called to be warriors right now. We're all called to be warriors of faith. We're all called to stand and to trust and to believe. It's as simple as that, but that's what we're called to do in the day we, in which we live. It's a time to stand. It's a time to stand up to tyranny. It's a time to say no. Enough is enough. Our leaders serve themselves. They don't serve the people, and they sure don't serve the Lord. And it's time for us as Christians to say enough is enough, and we will no longer follow where you lead. In the gospel today, Jesus has spoken up in Galilee, where he's from, and he's entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. So he's headed to Jerusalem. He's headed to Jerusalem for uh, what he knows will be the crucifixion. The Pharisees came up to him at that point and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? In other words, is there such a thing as no-fault divorce? If I just decide that I don't love her anymore, if I just decide that that, eh, it's probably served its purpose in my life long enough and I can move on from it now, is, is that a legitimate thing for me to be able to do? Can I divorce my wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, it's as simple as that. It's as simple as uh, the beginning of creation. It's the simple, I mean, you know, you go back to the beginning of creation and you see exactly what God's will is. So you're not asking me a question, Jesus says. You're asking the Father a question, and he plainly spoke on this in the very beginning with Adam and Eve. And and what would make you think something has changed since that time? They are one flesh. So to divide that one flesh, he says, is wrong because God put them together and made them one. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Which is exactly the process. It's a, it's called a get, a G-E-T, get. And so the way that it worked is a, a man could give his wife a get and say, we're done. I'm finished with you. And then they'd have to go to a rabbinic court to get that done. And until about a thousand years ago, it was only a one-way street. Only the husband could do that. Today, 
it's in Orthodox Jewish communities, whether you get divorced on a civil level or not is really not the issue. The, the marriage is not divor- d- dissolved until the rabbinic court grants the get process for the divorce. So there's a there's a court involved that hears the case, but at that time, men could pretty much just walk away. They could just give the get. They, some men apparently would walk around with them prepared. If my wife displeases me, I can go ahead and get this divorce. And so they want to know, did, why did Moses command one to give it a certificate of divorce? and to send her away. And he said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So Jesus dramatically limited the the reason for divorce here. People who, who think that Jesus came to give us far more liberty don't understand they, they don't read well. They have very little reading comprehension. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about sins from uh, the Decalogue, from the Ten Commandments, and raises the bar. If you hate your brother, then you murdered him. If you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. It, it, Jesus never lowers the bar on sin. It's just not the way it works. And so here... He says, if you divorce your wife other than sexual immorality and you marry somebody else, then you're committing adultery. You're breaking one of the Ten Commandments when you do that. And the disciple said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, is it better not to marry? Because you might get divorced. So they're, he's, they're saying... This is sort of a typical way of looking at the law. It's exactly what Eve does, right? Because when she says, we were instructed not to eat of that tree or even touch it. And so here the disciples are saying, well, wait a minute. If it's a sin to do this, then maybe the best thing to do is put the fence around the law and say, hey, be better even not to, not to get married at all. That way you don't have to have the temptation or to commit this sin and to have this particular moral failure. And he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. In other words, there are people who don't have the physical ability to get married or to produce, reproduce. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. We read about several of those, including uh, the one in Acts, what, what is that, 9? Act, no, Acts 8, Acts 8. Um, the one who is the, the the keeper of the royal treasury for Candace. <clears throat> and so they're, they're those. And then there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. And what it's saying is it's a choice. That last one is a choice. You've, they've chosen to forego that particular pleasure in life, which is non—it's um, it's not enjoined. It's, it's not— recommended or even commended as a way of life, but he says there are some who do. But those are specific ones, and we see those in the Revelation as well, right? Because those who have not defiled themselves with women are the ones who who are the attendants of the Lamb. They would be those who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. And so here what we need to understand is that if we are those people who are called to that chastity, uh, perpetual virginity, that, that, um, that, ki- that way of life, then fine. But if not, then you need to take marriage incredibly seriously. But it begins at the church taking marriage incredibly seriously. I did my oldest son's wedding 
about 10 or 11 years ago now. And afterward, a Baptist pastor came up to me as we got to the reception. He was waiting for me. And he said, you tied a knot tighter than anybody I've ever heard in my life. I said, did I go beyond anything that that should be said? Did I go beyond the way we should preach and teach about marriage? He said, no, but I've just never heard anybody do what you just did. I said, well, this is it's a particular thing for me. I, I believe it's really, really important that we stress the importance of marriage among Christians and, and that we hold one another to a high standard in that. And, and I don't want to ever do a wedding where people don't know what the standard is. I want them to walk out of there knowing that they've entered into a covenant before the Lord, and He has made them one flesh. And so if they choose to divide it, they need to understand that that's called sin. So I just believe personally that we need to to raise the value of marriage, and we need to raise it in every single way in the church, and we need to honor it. In the epistle from Peter, he says he, he first identifies himself, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. So the ones who are elect in Christ Jesus. That So elect is different from the circumcised, for instance. Nope, these are people who have been pulled out, chosen by God, and so it's those who are the elect, the saved, exiles of the dispersion. So, so we're all over the world, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In other words, you're elect because God chose you before he created the world. In the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's a mouthful right there, but it's very clear. It's the gospel The gospel is you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead because it means that you too, in faith, will be resurrected from the dead as well. And he says, don't worry about it. That that can't go away. It is permanent inheritance. It's not like earthly inheritances. No, this one is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. And it's we're waiting for that. And it's guarded through faith. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's important that we have tested faith, because that's how faith becomes genuine, is through testing. It's proven is what that means. So for gold to be processed through fire is to make it genuine, to make it pure, to make it truly gold and not some admixture of things in it. So it's purified through the testing, the assaying of it as it's being worked out. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you don't see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We're called to worship. We are made to rejoice with joy, as he says, that 
that's inexpressible at the truth of the hope that we have. It's that important and it's that huge a thing in our lives. It's intended to provoke that kind of worship and that kind of rejoicing. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have been announced to you through those that have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. There's a lot going on in that, too. What he's saying is that the prophets had a word for their own time, but they were aware that there would be a time beyond that time. And so, in other words, in prophesying to their own times, they also prophesied further into the future, into the time where you are. And they wanted to know these things, but but it was only the fullness of understanding even eluded the prophets because it waited until the fullness of time for Jesus to come. And no prophet, he says, was given that particular piece of information. It was kept from them, but they knew that what they were prophesying didn't just have an impact, he says, on the people to whom they prophesied it, but to those who would come after, those who would see more of the fulfillment of those prophecies than they themselves saw. And he says this is stuff that even angels long to look at. In other words, there were things that are even kept from the angels. I've been listening to a guy a lot lately named Michael Heiser, and one of the things that he talks about a good bit are the watchers, the Nephilim from um, Genesis 6, and also from the, uh, uh, the pseudepigraphal book of Enoch, which influences some of Jesus' teaching, frankly, as well as some of the writings in Peter and in Jude. So what he talks about there is, is that the sin of the watchers was, was twofold. It was to have sex with and procreate with the daughters of men, but it was secondarily um, that they had information, knowledge, and understanding about the created order that, women, that men and women on earth didn't possess. And so they gave some of that knowledge to, uh, to, to their offspring and to their wives, and then basically then they were working magic. And that, that knowledge had been prohibited for human beings, but it was given to angels. And what, what Peter's saying here is, is that, yeah, even angels don't know the, hu- the whole story. There's certain things that God reveals to them in real time in the same way that he reveals things to us in real time. It's important for Christians to sit at the feet of Jesus to listen to him, to pray, to to understand his teachings, but to celebrate all that he has done for us. Our, our deliverance draws nigh, and I believe, personally, that we're coming to the end of this thing.